Wow. It's such a blessing to be in a body where the diversity of the church is celebrated. I know that we say that often, but I don't want us to forget or take these types of things for granted. You know? Each individual in here who is filled with the Spirit of God has been given gifts by God, gifts that are irrevocable. And our goal is to see you utilize them, not just in this room, but like James was saying when he was talking about the announcements, in the entirety of the city that we live in and occupy because we are the light of Christ. And we know that the light will shine in the darkness and we know that the darkness will not overcome it. So we need to take that good news, James. We need to take the reality of the truth claim of the resurrection into the city and know that it will change people. You know how we know that? It changed us. Yeah. Yeah. It's good news. That's why the gospel represents good news. So I guess we should start with the obvious this morning. Um, there's no stage. <laughs> It is, uh, however, actually good news that there is not a temporary stage up here right now because God is just continuing to prove his faithfulness. We have been approved just after a year to build a permanent stage in our sanctuary, which is good news. Yeah, no more setting up and tearing down the stage. But that's not the only good news we received this last week. We've also been approved for on-site storage in the back in the bus depot area, which means that come spring break up, the snow will melt, some spring cleaning will happen, we'll finalize a location, we know the general area, we'll finalize the location, and we will either purchase a shed or a connex, and we'll have on-site storage. Now, you're talking about hope, right? This should produce hope in our hearts. Why? Not because our faith is in this building, but we strive toward making this house a home we do every time you walk in here the very first slide that's up before the welcome video the countdown video plays and at the end says help us make this house a home we're taking steps towards permanency now we don't know if god is going to keep us here indefinitely but what we do know is that as long as we are here we are going to work toward making this house a home i.e hospitality and comfortability why because when people walk through the door we want them to experience the love of God. And one way that God has established that we do that is through hospitality, right? That's a spiritual gift, right? And comfortability can be produced through hospitality. Now, we're not saying that we're going to make this place something that can override someone's heart emotionally. What we're saying is we're going to establish ground here that God has given us as long as we hold it. And that we're going to make things that give the air of permanency so that when people come in, they're like, wow, I think that I could have a home here with this family. It's not just an empty box that people gather in. It's actually a home, which means it's warm and it's heartfelt. And I want to function with this family. I want to take the purpose that God has given me and I want to watch that purpose play out here in this place. So be praying for us because this is huge. We've never built a stage, <laughs> you know? We've never done things like this. We've never, I've never bought a Connex, <laughs> you know? I've never shopped for one. Uh, so be praying for us, right? Because we've got to design it. We've got to purchase supplies, build and install everything. And this is going to probably happen over the next four to six weeks, God willing. 
So we need your prayers. We need your support. And that's the best way to support us. Next, I want to notify everyone that my wife and I will be out of state next week. We're going down to the lower 48 for a wedding, which means that Ethan is going to be preaching. So now you have two homework items, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's give him a round of applause because that's exciting. You have two homework items this week. You got to read John chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus every day. I love it. Read your Bible. And take the time to read Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. It'll take you 20 minutes to read it in one sitting. Maybe read it two or three times on top of John chapter 11. Get familiar with the big picture of what it is that Paul is communicating so that when Ethan opens up chapter 1 and he preaches from verse 21 to 23 and he talks about the topic of salvation, we will be able to take away what it is that Ethan's saying because we'll have spent time in Paul's letter. So we'll know what it is that Paul is attempting to communicate. So when Ethan communicates what God has put on his heart, we can walk out the door going, man, I needed that. I needed that. We want to set ourselves up for success, and this is the way to do it. So keep him in your prayers while you're keeping us in your prayers, because preaching is no small task. And then finally, I'd like to invite you to pull your phone out. That's right. Take it out in church. Make sure it's on silent. Open it up. Hit your calendar app. February 20th, two weeks from today, February 20th, we're going to be hosting our family Sunday service. However, this month it's going to look a little different. We're going to start with worship and communion. That's our standard operating procedure. But following communion, we will be serving everybody breakfast right here in the house. Bacon, eggs, sausage, hash browns, pancakes, coffee, orange juice, and milk for the kids. Mark, our resident chef who cooks for all of the men's breakfasts, is going to be cooking the food fresh while communion and worship is going down. Everyone will make their way downstairs, grab their plate, come back up here, fellowship. We're going to spend time together on Family Sunday getting to know one another. We're going to make room for God to move through His Spirit as we speak to one another, not just as one man speaks to the body, because we are a collective body. And so I'm excited about that, you know? A fresh-cooked meal... Bacon? I mean, you had me at bacon, right? <laughs> so it's a lot. We just covered a lot. James's announcements, his story. Let's do a quick recap. God has been faithful. We're going to be building a stage, and we have on-site storage approved. We need prayer. I'm out of town next weekend. Come to church. Sit under the teaching of Ethan. Read Colossians and John chapter 11 throughout the week. And then February 20th, invite your friends. So that they can come witness what it's like to worship the Lord in song, to approach the Lord's table, and then to have a meal with no strings attached. Because that's what it's about. Anybody have any questions? All right. Let's pray and then we can shift into our Bible study. Father, we thank you for what it is that you're doing. God, we are unaware of what will happen in the next five minutes, but you stand outside of time and you see it all. Nothing catches you by surprise. Sure, you cause things while you allow things, Lord. And Father, our prayer is that this morning as we approach the text, we would not just feel the need to allow, but we would wholly submit our hearts and our minds to what it is that you want to do in us. Change us, Father. Transform us. Prune the things that are slowing us down and holding us back off of us, God so that we can walk out of here transformed, taking the power of your Spirit into the world, bringing an effective change to our city. So God, we're asking that you would move in a mighty way today. 
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've been in our study in 1 Peter for five weeks. The last three weeks especially, we have been working through the ongoing introduction of what it is that Peter has been saying. This is a doxological prayer of praise. We've said deep, rich theology gives birth to high doxology. Right? So if you have a good theology, if you understand God's character and nature, it will birth in your heart and in your mind a desire to praise God. To praise God, no matter what is going on in your life, that will birth in you the desire to praise God, to rejoice and to rejoice again, Paul would say. To rejoice in all things. And we're like, that's impossible. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're allowed to suck and to suffer. You're allowed to not enjoy things and to get angry. But in getting angry, don't sin. Turn to God, draw near to God. Press into God when you're experiencing these trials. That's a form of rejoicing. Because when you press in, you're looking forward to the inheritance that you have. It's not turning your back on God. And it's not um, wrenching your anchor into something that you did in the past. It's living in the moment, knowing what God has in store for you in the future. That's what the whole, this whole portion of the text is. Remember, Peter's writing a letter of encouragement. A letter of encouragement to the church. And these churches in these five different Roman provinces are suffering. And Peter's suffering. He says, all the brothers are suffering throughout the world in the close of the letter. So this letter functions as a form of encouragement. Two weeks ago, we worked on verse 3, 4, and 5. Where we talked about what? Salvation. Our future inheritance. Last week, we worked through 6, 7, 8, and 9. In working through those verses, we talked about uh, the, the reality that trials are not for nothing. That God's testing produces in us what it is that we're lacking. And today as we deal with 10, 11, and 12, we will come to understand that God's revelation is not only consistent, but we are blessed, absolutely blessed to be born on this side of the cross in the new covenant, in the better covenant, the covenant of God's grace. So why don't we read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, 11, and 12 to get started. We're taking it from the ESV this morning, and Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. If you have your Bible in your hand today, on your phone, whatever you're looking at, and you just look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, the first three words read, concerning this salvation. By my count, this is the third time in the ongoing introduction that Peter has used this word salvation. We're looking at him right here concerning this salvation. And here are the two times that he uses it in the preceding context. Now, three times he's used this word, so it's probably safe to say that he's drawing our attention to it via the repetition. It marks this term as the link. To what has been previously written, it also marks something that we'll be reading in the future. 
as we continue to make our way through the letter. However, the context of verse 10 seems to have shifted. No longer speaking in the future tense, revealed in the last time, future tense, the outcome, future tense. Now he's speaking in the past tense, searched and inquired, things that have already taken place. So Peter is casting a backwards glance into the history of Israel as he strives to remind his audience of the advantage that they have over the people of old. Saints, do we understand that the people of old longed to understand more of the details concerning the climax of God's salvific plan for the whole of humanity? The prophets of old? Moses. right? David. Isaiah. Jeremiah. They had no idea that Jesus would be the Messiah. They had no idea. They spoke the oracles of God. They had one tile in the mosaic. They had no ability to take a step back and view the entire mosaic as it would come into, into focus representing the face of Jesus, the man from Nazareth. They longed to understand more of the details. Peter says that they searched and inquired after them concerning the, the climax of God's salvific plan. You know, and salvation is a general term in the Hebrew and the Greek. It can mean like deliverance for the nation of Israel. It can mean healing, deliverance from the enemy, like, you know, the, the, the demons and, and, and spiritual uh, oppression, things like that. It can also be attached to one's justification, sanctification, and glorification. So salvation has had multiple meanings throughout the history of the Bible. It's not like salvation was just birthed in the Hebrew language as some eschatological hope. It was a developing idea over time. As modern students of the text, we need to come to understand that the prophets of God, those who operated under the old covenant, were only granted partial insight into the purposes of God. Partial insight. Now, New Testament... Scholar Daryl Charles observes that in contrast, listen to this, in contrast, every saint, that would be all who were on the original recipient list of Peter's letter, as well as everyone in the church, so that's you and me as well, every saint who partakes in the new covenant is better off by virtue of possessing greater revelation than the prophets of old. Greater revelation than Moses, who stood on Sinai with God. Greater revelation than Samson's parents who stood in the presence of the angel of the Lord, the second power of the Trinity. Greater understanding than Abraham who was told by the angel of the Lord, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. We have a greater understanding of what it is that God was working towards as history was unfolding, as He was moving His redemptive arm through time. We understand to a greater degree because we live in the experience of the new covenant era. The covenant of God's grace. We don't just read about it. And we don't just talk about it like they did. We get to experience it. It's like the student who studies his entire life and then actually gets into the field that he's been studying and is like, I don't know anything. <laughs> experience brings reality into focus. When you have a depth of understanding that you've been drawing on. The prophets of old lacked this in their lives. Now check this out. 
Peter, like so many others in the early church, they saw the greatest importance of the prophets not to be the rebukes against those who were in error in their day. Rather, the, the early church fathers, the apostles, they saw of greatest importance the predictions of a future day of salvation. They did. The apostles understood that the most important things that the prophets wrote about were not their rebukes against those who lived in the northern or southern kingdom. The greatest things that they wrote about were in subject or in context to the coming of God's deliverance made manifest through the salvific work of Jesus Christ. Now Peter Davids notes that it was the firm conviction. Anytime I start to make a statement like this, your ears should perk up. You should sit up in your seat and be like, I don't know if I'm about to believe what Matt's about to say. Because you can't trust me or take my word for it. I'm a fallible human being. It's on us to be responsible to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. It's on us individually. Now we come together corporately to work it out. But it's on us to hold the mysteries of the faith with conviction. Each of us have that responsibility. Now Peter Davids notes that it was the firm conviction of the early church that the prophecies of old had become a present reality in the coming of Jesus, in His resurrection, and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That's what the early church believed. Which begs the question, this is where we ask the question, was it really, was it truly the firm conviction of the early church that the prophecies of old had become a present reality in the person, word, and work of Jesus? Do we believe that? Well, there's only one way to test it, folks. We're a text-driven church here, which means we're going to go to the text and we're going to see if we can confirm the truth of this claim. So let's do it. I need some people to read today. Um, let's see, Tom. Can I ask you to mark in your Bible Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 36? Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 36. I'm going to come to you last. Let's see. Anybody want to volunteer to read this morning? Ethan, I need you to mark in your Bible Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 21. I'll come to you second. And I need one last volunteer, Ryan or oh, Isaac. I'll let Ryan run the soundboard. Isaac, you can read it. Matthew chapter 13. Verse 10 through 17. And remember the question we're asking. Was it really the firm conviction of the early church that the prophecies of old had become a present reality? That's what we're asking. Isaac, Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 through 17. Read it loud. Should see with their eyes. 
Many prophets long to see what you have seen and long to hear what you have heard, and neither did they see or hear it. Did anybody catch it? The author of the Gospel according to Matthew attributes the current circumstances of the life of Christ as a fulfillment of the written oracles of God which were recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9-10. through 10. So this is evidence number one that the, that the, the God-man, the Messiah Jesus Christ, His followers and those who would exist in the early church attributed prophetic fulfillment to the life of Christ. That's evidence number one. Ethan, Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 21. Stand up for us and let Brent get to you so that the folks on YouTube can enjoy what it is that you're about to read for us. Go ahead. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven, in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the great and glorious day. All right, did anybody catch who's preaching in this portion of Acts narrative? Peter. Peter. Who wrote the letter that we're studying? Oh, okay. So there's a little bit of common ground here. Now, who wrote Luke? Uh, who wrote, oh, man, I just messed up. Who wrote Acts? Luke did. <laughs> Luke did. Notice that in history, we won't find a single piece of evidence contrary to the idea that Peter was ascribing what the prophet Joel had written to be unfolding in his time. There's not one shred of evidence. Now, the church was not only composed of the poorest, but it was composed of the lowest class. So we're not talking about those who had the ability to revise history here. We're talking about the smallest group of people. And we don't have one shred of evidence that somebody contradicted Peter's preaching at Pentecost and said, you can't do that with Joel's, proper, with, with Joel's prophecy. We have the evidence, though, that it's continued to exist in manuscripts by the thousands that what he was preaching actually came to pass. This is evidence number two that, that uh, Peter is marking the, prophet, the prophetic oracles of Joel to be what was unfolding during the days of the early church of Pentecost. Lastly, we're going to use, we're going to have, I'm going to have Tom read uh, Acts chapter 2. We're going to continue with Peter's sermon. He's going to read verse 22 through 36.
You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, uh, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are yourself are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There it is. Evidence number three. That Peter samples not only what Joel says, but that he samples two of the prophetic writings of David from the Psalms. Psalm chapter 16, verse 8 through 11, and Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. And he says that these things were fulfilled not only in the life of Christ, but they're being fulfilled in your presence on Pentecost, as he proclaims to all who are within earshot. Now, no one in the early church is rejecting Peter's interpretation of these prophetic uh, writings being fulfilled in the lives of the early church. No one's doing it. So I think that it's, uh, you know, safe to say yes, right, when we're thinking of the question that we were striving to answer. Now this is just a small flavoring of what it is that the New Testament authors have to offer. We could look at Jesus going into the synagogue and reading the scroll of Isaiah and saying, this has been fulfilled in your presence today. We could read Zechariah and we could look at Jesus getting on the, on the back of a colt that's never been ridden and going into the town and then saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And we could say, oh, there's another prophetic fulfilling. I mean, we could read Romans, right? We could read 1 Corinthians and we could tap into the epistles and we could look at all these Old Testament connections. It reminds me of that graphic that you put up with all of the different um, intertextual connections, right? Or we could look at the letter of, of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you do not know your Old Testament and you try to navigate your way through the revelation of Jesus Christ, you will be lost in the sauce. Not only is it apocalyptic in nature, but if you don't know your Old Testament, you're going to have no idea what's going on. So it's more than safe to say, in fact, we must answer yes in the affirmative, right? When attempting to tell people who are asking this question, yes, it was the firm conviction of the early church. It was absolutely 100% the firm conviction of the early church that the prophecies of old had become a present reality in the person, word, and work of Jesus. What do you guys think? Yes. Do we affirm that? Okay. Because we affirm that and it's freshly imprinted on the forefront of our minds, I need you guys to read this next slide out loud together for me, please. Starting to take shape? Starting to make sense? Are you taking steps back and is the mosaic coming into focus as you go this Old Testament prophecy? 
and that Old Testament prophecy and what was written by Moses, as I take steps back and as I hold all of these things in my mind, I start to see the person, word, and work of Jesus. Now, I want you to look at the terms that I've highlighted, right? Searched and inquired, inquiring what person or time. You know, these are words that should ring a bell when we reflect on the life of Christ, right? Anybody remember Jesus rebuking the Pharisees? You search the Scriptures thinking that in the Scriptures is life. But the Scriptures point to me, doofus, open your eyes. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Anybody remember this? You know, Jesus was not uh, a weakling. He was one who could exercise meekness and perfection. He knew when to be assertive. He knew when to speak assertively. And he did it without sinning. He did it for the greater good of those he was actually engaging yeah, he's not a pushover. You know, but it wasn't just the Pharisees that Jesus rebuked for searching the Scriptures and coming up empty. It was his own disciples on repeat. Which begs the question, if he was rebuking them, is he rebuking us? He should be. <laughs> We're no different. Anybody remember what happened on the road to Emmaus? Luke chapter 24 in the close of Luke's gospel. In his book, Four Portraits, One Jesus, Mark Strauss notes that the episode of the road to Emmaus only occurs in Luke's gospel. So Strauss argues that this represents Luke's greatest theological contribution to the resurrection narratives. If it's his greatest contribution to the resurrection narratives, we should be familiar with it. Cleopas, a disciple of Christ, is traveling on the road with another disciple of Christ who remains nameless, and they're walking toward the village of Emmaus. Cleopas and this companion of his, they represent the discouragement and unbelief of Jesus' followers. Are you a follower of Jesus? You will experience discouragement and unbelief in your life. And guess what? It's a good thing when Jesus, by His Spirit, comes and rebukes that in you. Now, as they're walking on the road, Jesus catches up to them. Now, his identity remains hidden from them, which is something that violates what we know to be natural via the laws of our own universe, which is interesting, right? But we have to remember, he's in his resurrection body. Oh, that's right, the greater context of this story. It's Easter day. The Lord has risen. And these two are walking on the road to Emmaus. And they represent discouragement and unbelief. And when Jesus catches up to them, they express profound disappointment at the tragic events which took place in Jerusalem. And everything they're describing is immediately connected to Jesus. And while they're doing this, Jesus of Nazareth is walking with them. And they're saying things like, I wish he was so much more than just a great prophet. It was my hope that he would be more, that he would be the Messiah who would rescue and redeem Israel, that he would drive Rome out, reestablish the borders, and unite the 12 tribes. But he died. They nailed him to a piece of wood. 
Their hopes had been dashed. And Jesus isn't like, I'm sorry it didn't work out the way that you thought it would. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus responds by rebuking them for their hardness of their heart. Are you a disciple of Christ? Your heart will be hard at points. Praise God that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father whose name is Jesus Christ, the what? The righteous one. His crucifixion had dashed their hopes into the ground. And Jesus just rebukes them. Oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus himself is saying, I'm the fulfillment, and you're missing it. Did not the scriptures predict the suffering of the Messiah? The sufferings of the Messiah? They sure did. And he had to suffer prior to his exaltation and his glorification. He had to suffer. Which means if the Messiah had to suffer before he would be glorified and exalted, guess what, church? We're going to suffer before we are glorified and exalted. And it's okay, because just like James said this morning, he's going to say, I got scars on my back too. I couldn't have planned it better. All I did was call him and say, yo, you want to talk to the church on Sunday after you give the announcements? Give a word? Yeah. And you came up with that. God gave you that. It couldn't be more timely. After he rebukes them, the schoolyard bell rings and class is in session. Jesus is walking with them toward the village in Emmaus and he literally takes them through the meta-narrative of the Hebrew Scriptures showing them how they point to the reality that God's Messiah must suffer and die. Did we notice the words that Jesus spoke in his rebuke? Oh, foolish ones. Imagine the pre-existent, eternal, glorified, risen Savior in the body that we long for, saying, foolish one. But he doesn't stop there. He says, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had written. When we look at these passages in juxtaposition to one another, it's almost like Peter was aware of what Jesus did when he engaged the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then we go and we read Luke chapter 24, and we're like immediately following the meal when they broke bread, Cleopas and his buddy get up, they run back to Jerusalem, and they meet the remaining 11, and they're saying the same thing that Cleopas and himself are about to say, He's risen! He showed himself to us. He's alive and well. He conquered death. The grave has no power. He is the Messiah. But he came in a way that we never could have imagined. This is what's going on. And they're all in a room and boom, Jesus appears. And he breaks bread with them. Of course Peter knew what was going on on the road to Emmaus. He's one of the living eleven that when these two remain are all talking and Jesus comes to the room. He is God with us. He's not far off. When we are struggling, they were going through the greatest trial of their life and he manifests himself in the resurrection body and speaks with them and eats with them and comforts them. Yeah. 
Alan Stibbs notes that in the mind of the first century Jew, as well as in the mind of any Orthodox Jew today, God's Messiah, suffering is an inconceivable idea. It blows my mind because all we have to do is go to the Bible and read the Bible. And we can say, how can it be inconceivable to you that God's Messiah wouldn't suffer? Close your eyes, church, as I read to you. Just listen to the oracles of Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And who has the arm of the Lord? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living? Stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief with his soul. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Open your eyes, church. 
People have taken this passage and they have ordered it on a sheet of paper so that it looks like it is just a standard piece of writing. No book name, no chapter reference, no verse identifiers. They've flown to the Holy Land. They've flown all over the world, as a matter of fact. And they've gone up to people on camera at random and said, can I just read something to you? And without fail, people say yes. They read this portion of the text to them, and at the end they say, who do you think this is written about? And without fail, people from all over the world say, that has to be about Jesus. And they're like, it was written at least 400 years before he was even born. And people are like, no way. That's impossible. Ah, the words of the prophets, the oracles, are being fulfilled in the life of Jesus and the birth of the early church. We cannot get away from it. After reading this portion of the text from Isaiah, we have to wonder, how was it even possible for those in the first century to miss the reality of what it was that was unfolding right before their eyes? But even to ask that question reveals the pride in our own hearts. Because we've already forgotten what we discussed in the beginning. We have to remember that those who lived and operated under the old covenant were only granted partial insight to the purposes of God. How could they identify Christ with the prophets, with the writings of the prophets? It wasn't until he came and conquered death that they could look back in hindsight and be like, oh my goodness, it's all about Jesus. It's true, Peter writes it, he confirms it for us. The prophets did not have all the details. However, Peter writes that they did not predict the Messiah's sufferings and subsequent exaltation for their own good or for their own glory or for even those in their own generations. The prophets understood that their message would best serve future generations. Do we understand that the church is suffering that Peter's writing to? They're suffering. Everyone in this room is suffering to some degree. That's the reality of life. Life is what? It's hard. This reality that Peter is getting at in the Messiah's sufferings and the subsequent exaltations from the, pri from the writings of the prophets becomes absolutely clear when we read verse 12 in the immediate context of 10 and 11. Can you guys read this for me, please? J. Daniel Hayes is a spectacular Old Testament pro, uh, uh, author on the prophets. He's a, a scholar of the Old Testament. And he writes that from the beginning, listen to this, from the beginning of the Christian faith, the Old Testament prophets have played a critical role in understanding God's redemptive plan for the world. The New Testament relies on the prophetic books repeatedly for its understanding of God and Jesus as the Messiah. The prophets of old provide the primary link between the text of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. 
Indeed, much of the theology of the New Testament is built upon the words of the prophets, making the the text of the New Testament difficult to understand apart from the message that the prophets proclaimed. Do we think it's important to be familiar with our Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Yeah, well, it's really important to be from Isaiah to Malachi. Absolutely vital to the health of the church. As modern students of the text, we need to remember that the apostles preached Christ crucified in accordance with the Scriptures. What does it mean to preach Christ crucified in accordance with the Scriptures? I'll tell you, there's no New Testament in the first century. That's what it means. To preach Christ crucified in accordance with the Scriptures is to preach Christ from the text of the Old Testament. How many of us can only preach Christ crucified utilizing the Romans' road? I'm not saying that it's a broken system, but I'm saying that Paul didn't need the Romans' road to preach the Gospel. How many of us can preach the Gospel from the Gospels without going, Paul said, Paul said, Paul said, How many of us desire to be able to preach the gospel from the text of the Hebrew Scriptures? That's how they did it in the first century. Do we want to walk in the steps that they walked in? Or do we want to just take the easy way? We need to know God's Word. We need to love God's Word. Because it is His revelation of His character and His nature to His people. Peter said that it was revealed to the prophets of old that they were not serving themselves but you. He's writing to his original audience. The prophets weren't serving themselves. My loved ones, they were serving you. And if they were serving his original audience, they're serving us today as well. They weren't serving themselves and yet it was with the very words of the prophets that the foundation of the early church was laid. That's what Peter's getting at here. The main goal of chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, is to spotlight the privileged status of Peter's original audience. Like I said, the church is suffering. Do we know that we have a privileged status? Is that a bad word to say today? Check your privilege at the door. No, that's retarded. I don't know if I can even say that word. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I know that that word is not acceptable, but that's how I feel inside when people talk about checking your privilege at the door. No, 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 no. The Apostle Peter says you have a privileged status that the prophets of old only dreamt about. And you want me to abandon that? You want me to jettison that? No! My privileged status comes from the creator and sustainer of the universe, the giver of life. I'll take his reward to me over anything that you have to offer me any moment of any day, and I'll hold on to it until these hands are cold and dead. (sighs) Peter's like, you need to become aware of the reality That they served you. Their oracles by God's sovereign plan were intended for you. 
It's like you can hear Peter telling his original audience, all of the sons and daughters in Christ Jesus are incredibly blessed to live in a time when the predictions of the prophets have come to pass. What a glorious reality to know that the things that Isaiah was longing to look into, was searching after, the things that Daniel was wondering, what does Jeremiah mean when he talks about 70 weeks? To know that everything has been revealed and fulfilled in the person, word, and work of Jesus. No more mysteries. Except for one, when he's returning. This is actually something we hold in common with the prophets. Just as they lacked, we have a lack. Which is why we need to press into Christ just as they did. I'm telling you, church, everything you have received, you have received through spirit-energized preaching. No different than what it was that the prophets were proclaiming so many years earlier. The Spirit of God came on them and they wrote the oracles of God. The Spirit of God comes on us. Actually, He dwells in us. He tabernacles in us now in this new covenant. And we speak by His authority. We are His emissaries. We are His representatives. When we speak, God moves. That's how He's chosen to do it. You have been given the authority that was given to me. Go make disciples. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded and baptize them. When you move, I will move. God doesn't need us, but He's chosen to use us. What an honor. Talk about a privileged status. There it is. You need some encouragement today? God loves you. So much He will not leave you where He found you. He will take you into the greatest individual that you could ever be. The person He actually created you to be. That's transformation. That's good news. That's encouragement. That's what Peter's getting at here in his prayer of praise, in his doxological exhortation to those who are suffering while he simultaneously is suffering. We have knowledge, understanding, and experience. We're spirit-filled believers living in the new covenant of God's grace. This gives birth to authentic joy no matter what we're walking through. It might not feel like it, but how we feel does not change the reality of what God has planned. If we find that hard to believe, if we feel it slipping through our hands like sand through the hourglass, then guess what? Spend some time this week meditating on the reality that we actually have what God's divine family longs to look into. We have that experience. They've been around, Job says, since he was creating, and they were praising while he was creating. Job chapter 38, verse 7. The angels have been watching it all, witnessing it all, and they have no experiential understanding of what redemption is. But we do because of the finished work of Christ. They long to look into the things that we experience every day. And we take it for granted. Like God isn't good enough. We have access to what it is that God's divine family longs to look into. We have a merciful God, church. We have a merciful God. In fact, that's the whole point 
of what it is that Peter's writing. He's declaring and elaborating the reality that God is merciful in this entire section of the text. So we're going to close this morning by reading all ten verses together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. Peter is suffering and he decides, today I will say, blessed be the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ. He is merciful. Why is he merciful, Peter? Because he's caused us to be born again to a living hope in the future. What is the living hope? It's our guarantee that was secured when Christ rose from the dead. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There is none because Christ overcame it. He's going to take death and throw his butt into the lake of fire and death will experience the second death. There's no need to fear. We have a living hope because our Savior is living to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The only thing, the only thing that exists that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading is God himself, which is why God is our inheritance. His lot is my portion, the psalmist writes, kept in heaven for you. Where is the God who dwells in unapproachable light? Where does he dwell? In the highest heavens where his throne is, where he is seated, reigning and ruling right now who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is my shield. God is my tower. God is my hope and my refuge of strength. However, He has given me armor. I need to put the armor on and know that while He guards me, I need to fight. That's what faith looks like. Loyalty to God for a salvation that will be revealed in the second coming. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You can rejoice in the midst of your trials. You may not feel like rejoicing, but you can. Why? Because you have an inheritance that is imperishable. It's God Himself. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, raise your hand if you want to come out on the end of life knowing that your faith is genuine. Anybody? Yeah, me too. So be glad when you're being tested. Because it will reveal that your faith is more precious than gold. Gold will perish when tested by fire. But faith that is found to be the result of what is genuine will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ. Check this out. This is a two-way praise, glory, and honor. At the, at, the judge, at the beam of seat of judgment, when God is judging all of the living and the dead, you know what He's going to do? He's going to give the righteous crowns. He will praise His children. He will glorify His children. And He will honor His children. That's one way that it works. And then you know what you're going to do with those rewards? You're going to take them off and you're going to cast them on the glassy seat of His throne. That's what it's going to be like. It's a two-way praise, glory, and honor. Though you have not seen Him, this is what we have in common with Peter's audience. They had not seen Him. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. I haven't seen Him. I've seen His work, but I haven't seen Him. I love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. I still haven't seen Him. Still believing in Him. And this causes what? Us to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Words cannot describe what the future has to hold because language is reductive in nature. And we cannot describe with language the infinite. So anytime we speak of God, we reduce Him. Our future joy is inexpressible. 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your entire being. You will be raised, given a new body, given a new name, and you will exist for eternity in the face of your Savior. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. What they longed to know about, we experience every day. Praise God. Praise God. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Yes, Jesus suffered, but it was not for nothing. He was raised, He was exalted, and He is now seated, and He is reigning and ruling. Well, guess what our future is? We will be raised, we will be given new bodies, and we will be given authority to rule in heaven alongside of Him on His throne. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. The same message that the prophets preached under the same inspiring spirit is the same inspiring spirit that preached the good news to you when you believed. This spirit was sent from heaven. Your privileged status is something that angels long to understand, but never will because they will never experience the redemption of Christ in their lives to the degree that we have. What a glorious word of encouragement. This is high doxology rooted in solid theology. Peter's prayer of praise. So what do we do, church, when we are suffering? We read this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for walking us through it step by step. For your continued faithfulness to reveal more and more of yourself even to us just as you had a progressive revelation in the text of the old testament and in the old covenant god and even though all mysteries are fulfilled in christ we continue to learn things about you as you continue to reveal things about you to us and we find ourselves so grateful to be on this side of the cross and to still be learning as you as you continue your sanctifying work in us father change us transform us humble us god we want to be humble so that at the proper time you will what? Elevate us, Lord. We are patiently waiting for you to come, but until you come, we will serve you with our whole being, mind, heart, body, soul, and strength. Lord, we love you because you first loved us and we thank you for your word this morning. Bless Ethan as he comes up to, to, to sing us through our final song. Bless those who enter the room and receive prayer from those who um, are willing to pray. God, continue to do your work in this church. Continue to grow us and give us what we need when we need it, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.